welcome to tonight's episode of The Epic Pencil, a weekly evening of original fiction, conversations with writers, and more. I'm your host, Chris Watson. Thanks for joining me. What is it about the circus and carnivals that so fascinates us? Is it the color and light all rolled up into an evening of theatricality? Perhaps it's the clowns, the performers on a horseback, or the daredevils shot from cannons. And then there's the gasp-inducing image of bodies clad in silver arcing high overhead. As the song says, He'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease, that daring young man on the flying trapeze. Those lyrics were written in 1867 to extol the exploits of Jules Leotard, a phenomenally successful trapeze artist and, you guessed it, the namesake of the one-piece dancer's clothing. For many of us, I expect that our first experience with the circus was going to see the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus when we were kids. But Ringling stopped performing under the Big Top in 1957, and I doubt that nostalgia for circuses is tied up in seeing them in a huge indoor arena. Instead, I think it's the idea of the carnival coming to town in the night, setting up the Big Top, the midway, and being there when we wake, like magic. It's an image that's been perpetuated in movies, like 1941's Dumbo, 1952's The Greatest Show on Earth, and more recently in the carnival scenes in 2017's Paddington 2. If you've been to a carnival, the memory is stirred up by the scent of popcorn and cotton candy, toffee apples, and more. It's reinforced every time you hear the song Enter the Gladiators, also known as Thunder and Blazes, written in 1899 and forever associated with the grand entry of the clowns and the other performers into the big top. You know how it goes. With only a few exceptions, that image of the traveling carnival, the amazing temporary world of the big top and midway, is a relic of the past but it's a compelling one that captures us with spectacle and nostalgia. We know it's an act, but we're still fascinated and captured by the illusion, not just of what's going on in front of us, but also the illusion of how it must have been in the past. Like Professor Julius T. Sinkbottom's magnificent traveling menagerie and performing phantasmagoria, they appear and disappear, taking their mystery with them. So let's put pencil to paper and continue with phantasmagoria Part 3 It seemed like everyone from Shelton's Cove and all the neighboring towns had turned out for the opening of the magnificent traveling menagerie and performing phantasmagoria. Hips and elbows jostled me back and forth, digging into my rims or shoving me to the side as the crowd lined up like cattle to slowly enter the main compound of the circus. Immediately in front of me, the twins hopped from foot to foot, unable to restrain their mounting excitement and impatience. Over the hubbub of the crowd, the sweet, mystical music of the steam calliope lured us onward, drawing the burgeoning crowd into an even tighter knot of hot, sweaty bodies. My parents were somewhere close, but the surging crowd separated us in the crush toward the entrance. A particularly sharp elbow bounced off my ear, and as I turned to retaliate against my unknown and probably unwitting assailant, a light but firm hand clamped down upon my shoulder. Don't worry about it, Hattie. We'll be out of this cattle pen in no time. Hearing my older sister's voice, I calmed slightly, and while still annoyed, refrained from lashing out at what turned out to be a withered old stick of a woman, all joints and angles. 
She was chattering to her companion about her turnips, and I promptly decided that she wasn't worth the effort, something Tess had known from the start. From behind us came the sound of several boys mooing like cattle, and a chorus of laughs rose above the muttering crowd. Jostling for position, the mass of humanity, more people than I had ever seen at one time in Shelton's Cove, slowly undulated toward the main gate, pulsating like some bizarre deep-sea jellyfish that had been thrown on shore. And still the calliope played, and voices rose from tents and stages, and still we waited. Finally, the crowd began to thin out and stretch into single lines to pay admission. Tessie, the twins, and I were reunited with our parents, who didn't seem the least bit concerned over our temporary separation. Father stepped forward and paid out a nickel for each of us and a dime for Mama and himself. Taking our tickets, we stepped into heaven. It certainly didn't look like Pastor Franklin was always telling us heaven looked like, but I knew from the moment I stepped through the pearly gates surrounded by Chinese lanterns that I had entered paradise. A flood of colors and sounds and smells overwhelmed my senses, too much to assimilate at one time. Led forward by Tessie's firm grip, I closed my eyes and simply breathed in the air of the gods. I had no clue everything I was smelling, though my numb brain could at least identify roasted peanuts and popped corn. All I could think of was the bedtime stories of Scheherazade and the Arabian tales. Did the thieves' cave, thick with incense and treasure, carry this smell to Ali Baba's nose? When the genie emerged from the lantern in a puff of supernatural smoke, was Aladdin as bewitched as I by the sense of sorcery that so pervaded what had once been Bacon's square? No longer was I standing on a grassy square overlooking the docks and rocky main harbor I had known all of my life. Instead, I was transported to a dimly lit pharaoh's tomb in Egypt, the misty hills of Arthur's Camelot, the darkest jungles of Africa, a smoke-filled den of pirates in Jamaica, all within fleeting moments of my entrance into the transformed world of Professor Julius T. Sinkbottom. I knew that I never wanted to return to a life that seemed dull and dusty in comparison to the smells and sounds and feelings that washed over my trembling body. Hattie, come on, you're standing in people's way. Opening my eyes with a start, I could see Tessie staring at me, a strange, questioning glance in her eyes. Hattie, are you all right? You look like someone just hit you over the head. Yeah, I nodded dumbly. I'm all right. This is all so wonderful. Tessie smiled. I remember the first circus I ever went to in the city. It's something you'll never forget, like the taste of Mama's homemade pecan pie. Enjoy it, Hattie, because after tonight, it'll never be quite like this again. Come on. You'll never get to see anything if you stand here like a stick. Everybody's waiting for us. As she said, the rest of the family waited alongside a wagon that urged us to visit the learned pig. The twins had a wide-eyed gaze that made them look rather silly. At least, I thought so until I realized that, more than likely, I had looked even sillier when I entered the circus gates. Now, Hattie, my father said, I know you want to go off on your own and meet Shep. Here's some money, but be careful how you spend it. The games are harder than they look, and you'll lose your money faster than you can blink if you don't watch out. Be back at the house no longer than half an hour after the carnival closes. Do you understand, young man? Yes, sir, I replied, 
Well, off you go then. I see Shep standing over there by the paper dragon. Have a good time. And with that, I was off. The five nickels that my father had given me jingled in my pocket as I ran off into the crowd, weaving among the throng of people that was still pouring in through the gates. I skidded to a stop when I came within ten feet of Shep. His father was talking to him, no doubt saying much the same thing as my father had said only moments before. Finally, he finished, raised his head, and called out, Hello, Hattie. I walked over. Hello, Mayor Duncan, Mrs. Duncan. This sure is exciting, isn't it? Lucy Duncan smiled. It certainly is. You boys have a good time and remember to be home no later than half an hour after the carnival's finished. Yes, ma'am, we replied in unison and vanished into the crowd. Gentlemen, test yourself against the Tower of Hercules. Try this feat of strength and see if you meet the challenge of the Greek champion. Only the strongest of men can hope to succeed. See how you compare to the strongest of all mortals. Three swings for a nickel. Win a prize if you match the legend. The pitchman waved his tall hat, drawing the crowd in around the tall tower with the face of Hercules at the very top. Where his nose should have been, a large bell was hung. Perched atop a fence, sharing a bag of roasted peanuts, Shep and I watched as Charlie Graves, the town's smith, stepped forward. A monster of a man, Charlie smiled as he handed the barker a nickel. I, I'll give it a go, he rumbled. Behind him, the crowd applauded appreciatively, cheering him on. He took the huge hammer as he tossed his jacket to his companions. Shep and I held our breath as he glanced upward and then gave a crashing swing with the mallet. The black weight rose higher and higher but slowed just shy of Hercules's chin. The crowd moaned in dismay. Charlie let out a deep breath and then sucked it back in, his chest swelling till it seemed about to burst. Another mighty swing and the weight soared overhead, peeked at the teeth of the demigod and fell back to the base once again. With hardly a pause, Charlie gave a mighty bellow of frustration and smashed the hammer down once again, and this time, over the din of the crowd, we could hear the sharp ring of Hercules' nose. The crowd roared appreciatively, and Charlie took a small bow, retrieved his jacket and a small prize from the barker, and made way for the next contestant. Come on, I said, hopping down from the fence, knowing none of the young dandies seeking to impress their female companions would be able to succeed. What should we see next? Together, Shep and I made our way along the sideshows, stopping to watch Mordecai Blount, magician extraordinaire, make pigeons disappear and flame rise from his hat. I stood spellbound as the great Rizorro swallowed sword after sword, and Shep had to drag me away from Chong, the wild man of Borneo. I was entranced by the visions that surrounded me. Never in my wildest dreams had I considered that life could be so colorful and exciting. More and more, my fourteen years in Shelton's Cove seemed to pale in comparison to that hour that Shep and I had wandered through this wonderland. Somehow, we found ourselves standing before a foreboding black tent, the entrance to which was guarded by a huge, dark-skinned man in a turban. The giant held a massive sword, wide and curved, and it flickered in the lamplight. He looked slowly down upon us. Who comes into the presence of Lady Zabrina, the gateway to the other world? He intoned in a fittingly deep voice. 
I glanced at Shep, whose eyes were wide with awe. We are, I stammered. I'm Hattie, and this is Shep. The giant nodded slowly. To have an audience with the Lady Zabrina, the spirits require a sacrifice of five cents for each visitor. Will you pay the price? Once again, I glanced at Shep, who looked at me out of the corner of his eye. I could feel the three remaining nickels in my pocket, and I nodded. I'll pay the price, I said in what I hoped was a thoughtful and serious voice. Yeah, me too, said Shep in a squeak, ruining what Ever effect I had achieved. Together, we each handed a nickel to the dark giant who lifted the curtain and ushered us into the presence of Lady Zabrina. Hattie and Shep, your ladyship, they have met the spirit's demand and made the sacrifice, he said, and withdrew from the tent. The tent flap rustled shut behind us, and for a sickening moment I could see nothing in the dark. Then a faint yellow light began flickering. Shep took a step forward, but stopped at the sound of a voice. "'Wait,' it said, husky and heavy with a strange accent. "'Wait for the spirits of the other world to cross over the barrier into my enchanted crystal.' I watched as the light grew brighter, illuminating a face deep in shadows, dark eyes staring from under a mane of black hair, unblinking like those of a hawk. The smells of strange spices and sweet smoke teased my nose. I'm the Lady Zabrina, gateway to the other world. You are Hattie, her head inclined in my direction, and I nodded. And you are Shep, she declared. Shep nodded as well, his eyes wide. I shall tell you your fortunes as they are revealed to me from the lines of fate on your palm and the spirits in the crystal. Step forward, Shep, and let your future be known. Shep slipped forward, gingerly extending his palm. Lady Zabrina took it in her hand, turning it over and gazing at it. Muttering to herself, she glanced back and forth between his hand and the crystal, After a time, she slowly smiled. Ah, Shep, you will have a long and happy life. You will travel across the ocean later in your life, but will always come back home. In time, you will marry a a brown-haired woman whose name begins with a K, and you will have three children, two boys and a girl, You will also grow another two inches before the new year. She stopped and smiled again. I guarantee it, child. Shep stepped back from the table, a scowl on his face. Though why he should be upset, I didn't know. I can only hope that my fortune was as bright. I stepped up the table and thrust out my hand. Lady Zabrina regarded me quizzically. You seem eager to hear your fortune she said, her accent deepening. Yes, ma'am. Why is that, child? Because this is the most exciting thing ever in my whole life, I replied. She smiled. Having your fortune read or coming to this carnival? Oh, both, of course, I exclaimed. Ah, she nodded knowingly again. Then I shall make certain that the spirits of the other world do not disappoint you. 
she took my hand in hers. As she traced the lines of my palm with one finger, I could feel the parchment-like quality of her other hand. The sense of garlic and oil wafted over me as I was drawn closer to her dark shape. I forced my gaze to her crystal, which flickered and glowed, giving off heat as my bare arm moved towards it. Finally, she glanced up, a look of wonder on her face. Hattie, I see the possibility of great changes within your life. A journey, perhaps, to Europe and beyond. New adventures, unlike any you have ever had. A life of mystery and wonder. Her voice rose in volume and tempo, building to a climax. I see horses and tigers and bright colors, a graceful flight. And there I see a girl with a name starting with M, or, or perhaps it is L. Music, people, so many people. Oh, it is almost too much to watch. I pulled my hand away in shock as hers squeezed highly. What do you mean? I demanded. She massaged her temples, catching her breath. I do not know what it means, Hattie. It is what the spirit said to me. What it means, that is for you to decide. Please, it is time for you now to go. I must regain my strength, and you do not want to miss the show under the big top. Thank you for coming. And with that, the flickering glow vanished, and we were left momentarily in the dark until the giant lifted the tent flaps and allowed us outside. This concludes Part 3. The Epic Pencil will return next week with the conclusion of Phantasmagoria, the first Hattie McLernan story. Thanks very much for joining me and taking some time to listen. And until we read again next week, Please enjoy a great book or two, and remember to support your local independent booksellers. The content of the Epic Pencil and Phantasmagoria are copyright 2020 by Christopher Watson.